I remember reading back in the days how players like Chris Pecula and, and others they they fought a, a battle for the soul of the Pro Tour. We are in a similar stage in history where we need to to fight a battle for for the soul of competitive Magic. I remember playing against uh, PV, against Javier Dominguez, against Marcio Carvalho, against Julian Neuten. They were all like 15, 16 year olds or 17 year olds. Just by playing there, you start getting really, really good. And, and then you show up at a PDQ or a local store and you're immediately above average. Kind of unreal to see that the headlines like Carlos Romão wins world championship. I had never seen like a Latin American player do well in one of those tournaments before. You know how the saying goes, you should never meet your idols? That's complete bullshit. Like, th those people, they, they never met Carlos. <laughs> Hello, and welcome to episode 62 of Humans of Magic, the podcast that gets deep and personal with your favorite Magic the Gathering personalities. I'm your host, James Sue. This episode is with Lucas Esper Bertud, who is an extremely well-known Brazilian pro Magic player. Now, Lucas is extremely outspoken and speaks his mind about everything, whether it's life, magic, or the state of competitive play. So in this episode, you're going to hear a lot of critical feedback from him on what he feels is going on in the world of magic and how he thinks it can improve. He will also speak his mind about some of the heroes he's had and also people that, well, let's just say that they're a little bit controversial. Before we jump into things... I just want to give a shout out to our sponsors. Humans of Magic is sponsored by ChannelFireball.com. Channel Fireball is the place to go for all of your magic needs. Pick up the latest cards, sealed product, or gifts for your loved ones at ChannelFireball.com. And don't forget, there's a ton of killer content on the website. If you're looking for something to listen to, check out Magic FM from Gabby Sparts and Mashi Scanlon. Or the new podcast, Scry Me a River, by Dennis Stranjak and Riley Knight. These podcasts are very topical and guaranteed to entertain. So go have a listen. Go find them all at channelfireball.com. Humans of Magic is also sponsored by Cardboard Live. Cardboard Live takes magic broadcasts to the next level. Whether you're streaming a tabletop tournament, arena, or magic online, we've got you covered. We just recently supported the Mythic Championship 7 with some awesome new features, and we're looking to do a lot more in 2020. So if you want to find out more, check out the Cardboard Live blog at cardboard.live slash blog. You'll be able to see all the things that happened this year, and we thank you for tuning in to Cardboard Live. Also want to give a shout out to the wonderful, wonderful music that has been supplied for this podcast. It is by an amazing Finnish musician named Kupla. You can give him a follow on Twitter at Kupla Sound. That's K-U-P-L-A-S-O-U-N-D. His music's just been totally amazing. It's consistently shown up in my most listened to playlists on Spotify. And you can find him everywhere music is found. So definitely check his work out. He's got some great music to relax to and really to do anything to. So yeah, I want to give my man Kupla a shout out, and I hope you will give him a listen. Last but not least, if you are a fan of this podcast and you want to preview two chapters from the Humans of Magic book, which is currently out on Amazon, you can just go to humansofmagic.com and join the mailing list. The moment you join the mailing list, you will receive 
two free complete chapters from the book and also one unreleased chapter that didn't make the final edit of the book, which is essentially an exclusive. Even if you have the book, definitely join the mailing list so you can get the special chapter. And along with that, you will also be entered into a prize draw for a copy of the book. So don't wait. If you haven't already, go to humansandmagic.com. Thank you. All right. So without further ado, here is my conversation with Lucas Esper Bertu. Everybody. Today on Humans and Magic, I am here with member of the MPL, Pro Tour Ada Revolt winner, professional lawyer. I'm here with Lucas Esperd Bertu. Lucas, how are you today? Good, James. Thanks for having me on the podcast. I'm a fan. No problem. I'm a fan of yours as well. And whereabouts in the world are you today? I'm in Sao Paulo, Brazil, where I've lived for the last 19 years and where I work too. Excellent. Have you just gotten back from somewhere? Yeah, I just played Pro Tour Richmond, and I'm going to call it Pro Tour, not Mythic Championship or whatever nonsense it's called these days. Back to being a Pro Tour, I think. Yeah, it it is the last one. So it's the last opportunity to call it Pro Tour. So let's do that. I I got back on Sunday night. I landed Monday morning. Then, as I usually do on those trips, I took a shower at the airport, went straight to the office. And then it's just a regular work week. <laughs> oh my gosh. So off the flight and directly into work. Yeah, that, that's what I do after every trip, basically. Uh, the, the way those tournaments work is I, I travel Wednesday night. Uh, I sleep on the plane. I do Thursday those pre-tournament proceedings, registration, media interviews and all that. Play Friday, Sunday. Play Friday, Friday Saturday, sometimes Sunday, usually not. Then I travel back Sunday night go straight from the airport to work. So so you usually sleep three days on the road, two days on a plane, and then I finally can sleep in my own bed. <laughs> that is so dedicated. And you, you seem like you have a routine by now, but does it still get difficult going straight back into work on the first day of the week, that kind of thing? Yeah, I, I'm getting better at it, but it is pretty, pretty tiring because uh, Sao Paulo is usually far away from, from all the tournaments. Usually takes me about 20 to 22 hours to go anywhere, if you count uh, time in cabs and Ubers and all that. So yeah, it is it is pretty, it is pretty tiring. It is a little bit crazy, but I, I do that once a month and I'm getting good at it. If you're not already, are you getting good at actually sleeping during the flight and being rested? Uh, oh, I'm a master at sleeping flights. Uh, I, I usually take the the business. Uh, class because I have the, those miles and things like that. But even when, when I don't, I, I can sleep in basically any position. Those days. <laughs> <laughs> Business class flights are really good because you can actually lie completely flat, right? They always have the, the full recline on most of the flights, as I remembered. Is that the case for your flights? Yeah, it's a, it's a small pad, but it goes uh, 180 degrees. So, so those are great. So right away, we have something in common because I also jokingly tell my friends that I have the superpower of being able to fall asleep anytime and anywhere 
<laughs> so you know, I've 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 actually fallen asleep some once while I was sitting or or standing. You know, all these kind of different combinations. Well, the the secret is being tired all the time. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. I've gotten into a lot of trouble with、uh, my significant other as well because I have definitely fallen asleep during movies. I remember one time I was watching <laughs>、uh, Thor, you know, the Marvel movie Thor, and I,、yes. I think we actually watched it in the theaters. So I went in there with her, and I remember watching the intro. It was ten minutes. They just introduced the the good guys and the bad guys, and then for some reason I fell asleep, and then when I woke up. <laughs> The movie was over and the good guys won. So I, I basically got the、uh, the whole story and it was very efficient. But I, I I always tell people if the movie is good enough, I will never fall asleep. But if the movie is a little bit mediocre, then all bets are off. Isn't Thor all action scenes and explosions and people getting hammered? It is, and sometimes <laughs> what happens for me is that when I see a lot of things moving quickly, it actually accelerates my wanting to sleep. I have no idea <laughs> why that is. <laughs> oh, that's great. Yeah, but trying to get a little bit back on track. I apologize for that. I do want to start off by just asking you about. I, I have to ask: Is your middle name really Esper? Yeah, I, I get. Ask that a lot, and not many people know this, but it's actually not my my real middle name.、Uh, I was born Lucas White Blue Blackbird too, and <laughs> that didn't quite roll off the tongue, so we had to shorten it a little bit. Yeah, no, no, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Of course, it is my 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 real name.、Uh, it's actually the name of a small village in Lebanon, where my grandfather was born, and when he immigrated to. To Brazil as a as a five year old, they they assign his last name、uh, as the name of the village where he came from, kind of like Corleone in in The Godfather. That that's what they did back in the days. And I have no idea why Wizards of the Coast created a, a plane out of it, but that's my name. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's definitely. I didn't mean to imply that Wizards invented the word Esper or the the name Esper. Obviously, it was something there from before. Maybe Grixes or something else they actually created. <laughs> But Esper, yeah, that that's been around. So, have you ever visited Lebanon or maybe your your grandfather's childhood home or place at all? No, I I never had the opportunity to go there.、Uh, my my grandfather's family was、uh, running away from from civil war, and、uh, I always I always thought of that as a dangerous place. I know it's much better those days, and maybe maybe maybe. Maybe someday. I know my mom would love to go there. Lucas, I thought I would just start off by going into a little bit of your your backstory. I would love to have you tell me a bit about your family background. Maybe let's just start really simple. Tell me a little bit about your parents and what they did, and even your siblings if you have any. Right. So、uh, my father is a police op- police officer. My mom is a teacher. I have a younger sister and a younger brother. My sister used to live、uh, in the U.S. Now, now she moved back to Brazil. My my brother lives on the beach. He takes life a little bit easier than I do, I guess. <laughs>、uh, my my folks, I、uh, my folks are good people. They they always been very supportive of of me and my hobbies. I actually think they are too supportive at, at times. I, I think if I tell my mom one day, "Hey, mom, I want to jump out of this plane without a parachute," what do you think? And she'll say, "Hey, if it makes you happy." <laughs> 
they're really, really good people. They're really great. I have a great childhood. I, I, I love them so much. And uh, I grew up uh, in, a, in a small town in the rural area of, of my state. My city used to have 5,000 people, 10,000 people, something like that. It's, it's a little bit bigger those days. Yeah, I lived there until I was 16. Then I moved to the U.S. for a short while, lived in Minnesota. Then I came back and went to college in Sao Paulo, Brazil, and kind of stayed there. Your parents strike me as having roles that are very much authority figures, right? A, a police officer and teacher. I mean, these are professions that are quite respected. And when they're dealing with people in their line of work, there's a level of respect because they are they are sort of leaders in what they do, those kind of professions. Did they take a lot of that home with them? Did you grow up in a very strict household? It, it sounded like maybe not, but I, I'm just curious about the dynamic between their professions and what it was like at home. My home was, uh, it was not super strict. They, they were two very kind people. They weren't uh, very well off when, when they were young. So they, they went through a lot of hardships in their lives. So uh, they, they taught me how to be very uh, appreciative of, of what he had. And, and I certainly was. Uh, actually, I, I think police officer and teacher are the two most common professions in Brazil, at least as far as public servants go. So uh, it's just like very ordinary household, I, I would imagine. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't don't really see them as being uh, very strict in how, in how they raise me or my brothers. Uh, but I think what what strike strike out the most in, in in the house I lived in is well, it was a different time and a different place than than what we have those days. You know, growing up in the eighties uh, in a in a poor Latin American country uh, in a very Christian community, and I don't know, I, some some of my ideas in, in that city were a little bit backwards for two thousand nineteen standards and. Uh, and I was very fortunate that that my my parents were two open-minded people that uh, always taught me to to be respectful to others and be acceptance be I don't know the English word just be able to accept people ho- however they are or no matter their beliefs or or their preference or things like that. I, I think I got lucky in that regard. <laughs> Did you guys go to church every week? Like, how, what was that like? Because you you had mentioned a little bit of that. Yeah, it's it's a very Catholic house. I, I did go to church. Until I was 14 or 15, I went basically every Sunday. I went to, to Sunday school. Where I got my, my communions and, and things like that. Uh, my, my parents, they were part of the uh, the Christian uh, Bible study groups and taught and uh, Sunday schools and, and things like that. It, it's just part of the community. What were some of your favorite activities growing up as a child? Oh, I was one. I was super, extremely competitive kid. So whatever it is that we did, I would host tournaments for it. I, I played every sport because I liked to win, not because it was good. Uh, I, I played every game. I We made up uh, Olympics and different activities and things like that. So I, I was always finding a way to compete with other kids. And the second thing I liked to do was just all this just nerdy stuff. Video games, role-playing games, Magic the Gathering cards, watching Star Wars movies, playing the computers. And, do you remember how it was that you were so competitive? Like, was it just natural from day one, or was there something that led you to become very competitive in sports, for example? I think I was always this way. Um, my my greatest um, childhood idol 
was a racer called uh, Ayrton Senna, or Ayrton Senna, if you say it in English. And he was basically the most competitive person on earth. So I think he was just trying to emulate whatever it is he did and just trying to be number one and, and win everything. <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, we, we sort of grew up in the same time period. He was legendary. I mean, he was, yeah. he was truly one of the, the greatest competitors that ever lived, right? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. Uh, even, even to those days, uh, I think he, he's still a legend in Brazil. The day after he died, I think it was the saddest day of my life. I, I couldn't go to school for, for like a week because I was crying all the time. And you can look up uh, documentaries about it in YouTube videos, but when when they brought his coffin uh, home and they were transporting it to, to, to the cemetery to, to, to bury him, the whole city of Sao Paulo stopped. There were millions and millions of people on the sidewalks or, or, or on windows and, and buildings just to see him for the last time. I, I, I've never seen such, such a moment in the history of my country of such uh, respect and, and, and union because he, he was an absolute legend to everyone. And solidarity, right? Because regardless of how people felt about politics or religion or things like that, everybody was, you know, had that solidarity around this person who undisputably great in, in what he did and put everything into it. Yeah, even the, the soccer teams, that they have this crazy rivalry that's violent at times. Uh, and on that Sunday, all, all, all the fans were, were together, all the teams were together to to pay their respects. And it, it, I don't think we'll ever see an idol like him this day and age, something that is universally beloved. And he, he was such a good person, too. Uh, after he passed away, uh, we... We learned that he would give, had given away most of his money to, to different charities. Just he just never talked talked about it because he didn't want to draw attention to himself. Just such an spectacular person in, in every sense. Wow. Games were in your family, video games, and around what age were you when you discovered magic? And how and how exactly did that come into your your knowledge? Like I want to know who introduced it to you, basically. Oh, it, it was so long ago that I saw an ad in a magazine and I ordered cards by the mail. <laughs> uh, so I, I was playing role-playing games with, with my friends and thing, and I, I bought this magazine where they had you know different characters and stories like that. It was a RPG magazine, and there there was an ad for the game in in the back cover, and I said, "Oh, great! This is a competitive game. This is, I, I can play and battle my friends." So I just I just bought the cards by the mail. Uh, I got my Fourth edition deck with a bunch of packs. I tried to understand the game by reading the rule book. Oh yeah, that's impossible. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> and the rule book was in English, right? I, I think they had a version in Portuguese, but it was a terrible translation. And and I was twelve. I I could not understand. Yeah. <laughs> I could not understand that. And some of my cards were in English too, and and I couldn't understand them. So I, I just kind of made up my own rules. I think every kid did that at some stage. <laughs> Who did you play with initially? Uh, my mom, my my neighbors. Then I eventually I, I brought my cards to school and I learned other kids had their decks, so I started playing against them. Then one of these kids told me that there was a, uh, an American guy living in town that had a bunch of cards and he was hosting tournaments. So I started playing there and kind of worked up my way in the competitive ladder 
that way just we didn't have a local gaming store it was literally just a guy moved from the u.s that knew magic before everyone else and he had tournaments in his house basically and then he rented uh an, an abandoned meat packaging place and the place where it used to be the freezer he he made <laughs> he put some tables in there and we used to play there <laughs> so hopefully it wasn't freezing cold but it was just a converted freezer right yeah it was converted well it was a place without any windows and a single door and uh-huh. very dark but <laughs> but could fit a lot of kids playing magic whatever there. it takes to play magic right yeah Whatever it takes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> wow, that sounds really grassroots. And do you remember, because you said you were 12 when you first learned about the game. How long did it take you to actually start doing that and playing, quote-unquote, competitively? At first, uh, magic cards were very cheap in Brazil because the, the local currency was artificially inflated to match the dollar. So you could buy a bunch of magic cards with your allowance. For two or three years, that's what I did. And every kid have every deck, despite you know us being really young and all that. But then suddenly there was this economic collapse and cards got 10 times more expensive. So that, that was around the time where everybody stopped playing. And I stopped playing too, but I, I still liked the game and, and, and I wanted to know more about it. So I started looking up on the internet and there was the, the dojo website and the sideboard website. And there were all those tournament reports there. And I kind of fell in love with reading that. So... I think I got good at Magic after I stopped playing it <laughs> because uh, I, I started to know more about those decks and all those incredible players and I was just reading Hollywood Sideboard and how to play those decks and all of that. And that really got you more more and more deeper or passionate to, to be a competitor, it sounds like. Yeah, I, I, I think I instantly fell in love. I think, I think it was like 1997 or 1998 where Randy Bueller uh, wrote his Pro Tour Chicago tournament report it was in the extended format and he was playing a five color necropotent stack i i like i distinctly remember reading that tournament report and thinking it was the coolest thing on all the universe he, he was talking about how he built his stack he described in a lot of detail how the games played out and and i thought that it, i thought it was magical uh, there was this sense of wonder of reading that and and wanting to be be a part of this world and I, I had some old magazines with, with tournaments report in there too, like the Ton Champagne 1996, I think, World Championship Report. I, I read that like 30 times with an English dictionary by my side to, to understand the words. So even after I, I had stopped playing Magic because of the price, I, I kept involved in the game by, by, by reading stuff on the internet for, for like many, many years after that. And, and I think it wasn't until... 2002, where I saw that Carlos Homo won Worlds, where I really wanted to to go back to Magic. Carlos is one of the most famous players from Brazil, if I'm not mistaken, right? Oh, for me, he's the most famous. Like, yeah, PV has 14 top eights or something like that. He's in the Hall <laughs> yeah. of Fame. But Carlos was the first. Uh, it, it was kind of unreal to 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 see that the headlines like. Carlos Romão, and there's a Brazilian flag he was holding, mm-hmm. wins world championship. I, I had never seen like a Latin American player do well in one of those tournaments before. So it kind of made me feel, well, maybe this is for me too. And I think the year after that, I started working part-time and I started college. So 
I had a little bit more control in my time. I had a little bit of money. So I just bought a bunch of Magic cards and started playing tournaments because I, I wanted to be like Carlos. <laughs> yeah. And you mentioned moving to Minnesota in the United States when you were 16. So this happened obviously after Minnesota. But can you tell me a bit about what made you move to the United States? Was it for studies or was it for something else? Yeah, uh, it, it was a great time. Uh, my mom, she, she got a grant to uh, take a course at, at the University of Minnesota, which is uh, uh, well known for their psychology department. And that's the, the, the area where she she specialized herself. So it, it was a really a great opportunity for her, but she would never leave her family behind. So we all went along. <laughs> And it, it was a beautiful place. Uh, I stayed uh, in Roseville. That's in the St. Paul metropolitan area. Uh, I went to high school there. I made a lot of friends. I got really, really cold. I learned how to snowboard. <laughs> and how long were you? How long was your family and you there for? Uh, it was close to a, to a year, a little bit less than that. What happens after that? You guys just moved back, or did you stay on somewhere else? Uh, yeah, uh, we, we moved back. I had to take my uh, university uh, acceptance tests. I'm not sure if this is the right word. Well, basically in Brazil, uh, the, the public universities are the best ones and they're free. So it's actually very hard to, to get into them. You, you take the equivalent of the SATs or I, I don't know the exact name for the test, but you, you take a test and it's very hard. And if you're one of the top ranked students you you get in, in college for free so so that's a big deal so i was i wanted to focus on that i, I studied a whole year for my exams and, and eventually I, I got accepted and i started college excellent going back to the the magic part you mentioned how it was very expensive to play in brazil at that point but after knowing about what your countrymen did and stuff like that when did you start getting hands-on with magic again like approximately what time was that yeah, I think it was the, the year after I got in college because uh, I was able to start working as well because I had a little bit, a little bit more control and I could start a, an internship or a part-time internship alongside my studies. So now I had a salary. <laughs> and what best, best way to spend your salary than on magic cards, right? <laughs> so the magic cards were still quite expensive then, right? Because I always heard from people in Latin America or South America that cards are generally more expensive and I, I didn't I don't really have a good sense of that but I have no idea I mean are, are cards still inflated even today they're still more expensive uh, compared to the average cost of living here than, than anywhere else and there's uh, an added problem with tax imports that make them like normally the, their face value is already more expensive because of, of the, the taxation and on top of that the, the cost of living here the Average salary here is, of course, much lower than the most places in the developed world. The way it worked back then, I you could buy one deck. Like I could afford one deck, and if I wanted to play something else, I, I usually had to sell my deck or try to borrow from from other people. So, but 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 it was doable. Like I I could play constructed tournaments. I, I could play those sealed deck events. I, I just couldn't like I didn't have a full collection or anything like that. So tell me about that. Now that you got back into the competitive scene while you're in, in college or internships and whatnot, 
What was it like during that period for you? Did you see success right away? Was it a lot of losing? Uh, what was this? What was the tournament environment like at that time for you? So basically, there, there was this software called Apprentice that used to emulate Magic, and you can play it online. That was before Magic Online even existed. And there were leagues where where you could play Magic using that software. And it turns out a lot of really good players started there. Like I, I remember playing against uh, PV against Javier Dominguez, against Marcel Carvalho, against Julian Neuten. They, they, they were all like 15, 16-year-olds or 17-year-olds uh, playing through Apprentice. And just just by playing there, you start getting really, really good. And, and then you show up at, 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 a, at a PDQ or a local store, and you're immediately above average. So I, I think it didn't take me very long to start like making top eights of, of PDQs and, and reading regionals or making uh, top eight at nationals because I, I was just used to, to play at a high level because of, of this online play. Yeah, you had mentioned things like studying the magazines or the dojo. And also now what you're saying is, you know, you're, you're obviously practicing against really good players. Did you befriend any particular players? Like, were there certain relationships that help you get better during this pivotal point in your time as a newly competitive player? PV was the one that stood out the most. Uh, we both sort of starting started getting good at around the same time. Uh, he, he was already better than I was, even though he was younger. But uh, we had this uh, IRC chat room with, with other players, and I, I still talk to almost all of them to these days. It's called MTGBR on IRC. <laughs> and, and PV was there, and we used to talk a lot about magic. And I, I remember reading some of the PV's first articles when he was mentioning how he learned some strategy concepts and things like that. And a lot of his stories, he started, oh, I once talked about my friend or about something, and that friend said this and that. And usually someone in that chat room that said that said that thing. We're usually the unnamed friends in his articles. <laughs> and uh, it, it was it was a really good time to to learn because the, the ease of, of online play and just not having such a busy life, just just doing studies and internship, even though it sounds like a lot. I, I remember having a lot of free time back then. <laughs> Did magic dominate your life to the point where it was like you were thinking about it all the time? I guess a good way to to look back at, at those days and in my life in general is that I, I usually go through a cycle where at the first stage I, I love magic and everything about it. And then I realize I'm spending too much time on it or too much money on it and I should stop and then I quit for a number of years and then I get lured back into to playing competitively so back in my early college days I was the, still in this honeymoon phase where I love magic and I just want to play it all the time and there was a period of time where I was qualified for the next four pro tours or the next three pro tours and I, I would get a, a pro club level that would be equivalent to gold. And so I could go in that direction and just play pro tours for a year. But it was around the time where I had to finish my thesis for university. And I, I, I just started a, a new job at a law firm. And I kind of had to make my decision back then. Like, do, do I want to play magic or do I want to have a serious job and finish school the right way? And... That's when I decided to, you know, let's, let's be a responsible adult. Let's stop playing magic. And despite 
being qualified for a bunch of pro tours, I, I just stopped it. I didn't play for like five years after that. <laughs> I see. No, I mean, that's a very responsible attitude. And is that, is that something that was hard for you at the time to decide between the two? Or did it seem just like a, a natural conclusion? It, it wasn't hard in, a, in an intellectual way because I knew it was the right thing to do. But it, it, it was hard in a, in a physical way or an emotional way, I guess. Because, you know, it is a very addictive game and it is a lot of fun. And if you want to be really good at it, you have to make sacrifices. It's kind of like the, the movie Whiplash or, or reading an interview by Tom Brady. If you want to be one of the greats, you, you have, to left, have to leave aside everything else. You have to be willing to, to sacrifice a lot of elements in your life. And if I wanted to, to pursue that and be a competitive player, I, I just I could not hold a job for a year. I, I would not have such a good grades in school and I would not finish my thesis in time. I would have to think about magic all the time and travel all the time and play all the time. And, 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 and I knew it was not the correct thing to do, but it, it, it was very tempting, especially because around the time, PV was doing incredibly well. Willie Yellow was doing incredibly well. And, and I knew I could play at, at their level. When, when you're young, I think you're, you're more willing to pursue a, a romantic vision of life and trying to follow your heart and, and do the things that you really like. But uh, I guess I, I knew even back then that I should be a responsible person. It sounds like it was a tough decision for you at the time, especially when you were younger, because as you said, you, you did feel like you could hang or compete with some of the other players that were seeing success, right? Yeah. Uh, I mean, I spent a lot of my childhood and teenage years thinking about magic and dreaming about magic. And suddenly that lifestyle presents itself in front of me and I could dive full on or I could be an adult. <laughs> I guess like I always knew it was the right thing to do, but it was emotionally hard to, to, to make that move, I guess. Right. Was there some event later on that really made you get back into it? Even though Magic wasn't a full-time job for you or anything like that, did you keep up with the game? Did you quit the game for like a long time and then just decide one day to come back? Like, How did that work for you as you became a, a professional lawyer and, and worked in that space? No, I, I quit for good. I, I even stopped reading about it. I stopped talking to my, my friends from, from Magic I, because I, I, I knew it. It would make me suffer more if I kept that part in my life still in the pocket or in the side. So uh, I think it was important for me to distance myself completely. Uh, but it, as I said, I, I'm a very competitive person, so I just kind of looked for other hobbies. I, I played uh, StarCraft II. I was eventually national champion in teams for that. I played Hearthstone. I, was, I won the first tournaments in Brazil on that. And I realized through those other hobbies that they were not as demanding as magic because I didn't have to travel for them. I could just play at home. But I could still like dedicate a part of my day to, to thinking about games. And, and I enjoyed that. And, and, and I thought that they were a good uh, escape outlet for, for the stress on, on the job and, and, and my day life. So I was playing other games in that period. And I think it was five years after I quit magic. My, an old friend of mine said there was a, a team sealed tournament Grand Prix uh, in, in my in Sao Paulo where I lived, and 
his teammate flunked on him, and if if I wanted to join, I say, hey, I, I don't even remember the rules anymore. So yeah, it's it's no big deal. Let let's just have some fun. I, I can teach you again. And <laughs> and it was a lot of fun. Uh, we prepared for the tournament. I I loved every second of preparation. I I, I learned. I loved relearning the game all over. And we actually made top four of that Grand Prix. And after that, I was I was hooked again. I was just smiling as you were talking about the story because I, I know how it goes. You know, somebody hooks you back in, you think just one tournament and next thing you know, you're, I hate to use the uh, the comparison, but it's like a drug that just comes back, you know? <laughs> yeah, it comes back and and I knew it was dangerous in a sense, but, but I felt they had uh, matured more as a person and I think I was more capable of uh, to keep it in a different compartment, I guess, in, in my brain and not let it overtake my life. I, I was just better at managing my time and my responsibilities. So so that's how so that's how I got back to playing. And that was 2014. And I think that same year, I, I won a, a PDQ in, in sealed deck, which I always liked. And I started playing Pro Tours again. And once you start playing Pro Tours again, then it's really hard to stop <laughs> because those things are great. Right. But th there must have been some calculation, though, right? Because you, you said, okay, I'm older now, I can better handle the things. But having said all of that, it still involves a lot of traveling, right? We had just talked about how you have these incredible long flights that are 20 hours. So what was the difference in your life, you know, in 2014 that you felt like, okay, let's let's try this again. And let's try to do it in a in a balanced way. Yeah, so so what I thought was, well, if I only play tournaments on the weekends, that's fine. I can can play tournaments on a Saturday and have Sunday for for my family and and friends. And I have 30 days vacation every year. It's not so bad if I use 15 of them to to play a pro tour or two. So I, I thought I had the time to to do everything. I, I of course never imagined I would go full on professional and and travel to events every month. And if I knew that that was the direction I was going, I was I was probably not even returned to Magic. My plan was just to play one Pro Tour a year, and I would be very happy if I had that life. <laughs> but you saw success, and you were not just playing once a year. So was there any point in time where you thought, this was a little bit too much, or did you just think, let's go with the flow, because I'm I'm on a roll, let's see what happens? Yeah, I think after I, I won Pro Tour at a revolt in Dublin, and I found myself qualified for worlds and seven more pro tours i i thought well this is too good this is too good of an opportunity and i guess a little bit before that i i had closed my my biggest case in work it, it was a, a complicated negotiation that took about a year and during that year i really didn't have any time off so i didn't do anything i didn't have vacations i, I worked 14 16 hours a day Worked most weekends, so it, it was a very taxing year of my life. And uh, one of my partners that that worked with me on that case, she she was so burned out, she, she just quit being a lawyer altogether. It, it was a very draining case, I guess. We closed that negotiation. I think it was December first, and on December eighth, there was the PDQ for Dublin, which I played and won. So it, it was right after that. So it was a time of my life where I was thinking, work might kill me. <laughs> I, I I might not. Take this, take this work thing in, in a healthy way if I don't have an outlet for it. So at that time, Magic presented itself as that outlet. 
and going, hey, I, I work so hard. Is it so bad if I take, you know, 12 months or 18 months and take a little bit more vacations day and talk with my partners about it, see if it's okay if I travel a little bit more. Just kind of taking uh, a small sabbatical year after a very, very tough period of my life. So, so that's how I saw it. It was not, I guess, if I things at work weren't so hard, I, I wasn't, I wouldn't be willing to, to take that sabbatical time to to travel more and play Magic. And how did you feel mentally and physically during that one year sabbatical? It was a lot of fun at times. Just hanging out with your friends and during travels, it, it's the absolute best thing in the world, right? We we all know that. That that's why we all play Magic. But but at times it, it was hard because. Uh, I couldn't cut off work completely. I, I was still putting in hours. I was just trying to take a little bit more days off to travel, but I still had a, my responsibilities and a lot of my clients. Uh, I remember, I think it was uh, Pro Tour Albuquerque, where on the Friday morning of the Pro Tour, I got a phone call at 1 a.m. and something urgent had happened. And I spent from 2 a.m. to 8 a.m. writing a memo and answering emails. And then I went on and played the Pro Tour. <laughs> oh, man. And I went 0-7. and seven. Yeah, that definitely had an impact on your on your tournament, for sure. Yeah, so I guess even though I I kind of wanted to take a... To, to see it as a sabbatical year from work, I, I, I was still working. And for, for some of the trips, I couldn't really cut off work completely. And, you know, if it comes down to, to play testing or sleeping for a Pro Tour or... And getting a work deadline done, work is going to take priority every time. Okay, so tell me about how you went from that period of time to the MPL contract and kind of where you're at right now. Yeah, right. So um, after I won the Pro Tour, I figured I have 12 to 18 months of qualifications to, to events. And because I, I didn't plan to to plan on a lot of Grand Prix and because I didn't think of myself as a as a top-tier player, I didn't really imagine that I was able to uh, get platinum status again or, or gold status again. I, I thought it was just square belt, and, which was fine in my mind. I just wanted to play the events. I didn't care about becoming a pro. But turns out that uh, my, my year, the season after I won the Pro Tour, I, I actually did really well. I, I made top 16 in a couple of Pro Tours. Uh, I, I won a Grand Prix. I, came, I finished second on Nationals. And because of that, I, I wasn't one of the top 30 ranked players in the world. And uh, about of about in November last year, uh, I, I get a phone call from from Wizards of the Coast, and they say, "Hey, we we want to launch something. It's called the Magic Pro League, and we're gonna take the top ranked players in the world. We're gonna pay you a salary. You're gonna play those pro tours on on Magic Arena, and it's gonna be esports, and your name will be on ESPN." and that, that was completely uh, outside of my initial plans. But at the same time, it sounded too good for me not to take that opportunity. I extended my, my period playing Magic for another 12 months. And it would be even more traveling and even more dedication to the game. So uh, I had a meeting with, with my partners and, and, and explained it all to them and said, hey, I'm going to have to travel even more. And, and I know it's difficult for the firm, and, and I know you guys want me to, to be more present, but this is a really cool opportunity, and, and the money's fine, and I think it's going to be fun for me. And they were very supportive, and we could work out something where I take more days off and be able to play those events. There wouldn't be a lot of time left for playtesting uh, like at all, but I would be able to travel. And 
it, it was up to me to to figure out a way to to play magic and work and travel and have some resemblance of personal life in in, in that period without it being you know too overwhelming so how do you feel about it today you've been in, in the npl for quite some time i would say almost the whole year so How's it been like? Has it been everything that you expected, you know, from the moment you talked to your partners about taking a little bit more time on it? Yeah, it's, it has been tough. On one hand, I, I, I have to say I, I have been disappointed with the MPL and, and the way Magic as an eSport has been handled. It's not really the way I, I envisioned it would be. Uh, I think the Wizards of the Coast uh, trying to prioritize using the, the arena tournaments as purely as advertisement events instead of treating them as, you know, a competition and, and a care about competing and, and a care about players having a fair shot to compete. And so when they choose a, a bad format like dual standard because they think it's best for, for a show or they discretionary invite players because they're famous streamers of other games instead of, you know, giving a chance to, to players that want to try their, their luck at the open qualifiers or, or players that have proven success at tournament magic that that for me was was very disappointing uh, i guess I, I don't really agree with the division they have for esports right now and uh, that kind of took away my, my enthusiasm for for the arena side of things i don't really plan on, on continuing the, the mpl next year if unless there are some significant changes to it which i don't expect they will do and Having to travel once a month, I think I, I'm good at it, but something had to to give up. So what the, the aspect of my life where, where I had to sacrifice the most was just my, my personal life, right? My my, my friends, I, I my friends, I don't talk to them as much this year. I don't really, I haven't gone to see my parents many many times. I was dating a girl and kind of realized I was not be able to see her for like two months, so we just kind of broke up, <laughs> it, which. which like I, I knew that would happen. Like I, I knew something would would have to to give up for for me to to do those things. So I'm fine with the choices I made and and the sacrifices that I made in my personal life. But I I don't think I I'm able to to continue in that lifestyle unless I I'm fully I fully buy into the project of competitive magic and and given all those recent changes and the directions going I, I don't think you can do that anymore. What do you think can be actually done i'm sure you must have you and countless other players must have given your feedback but just for the listeners like what do you think can be better done in this space with the organization of it all i think without getting into details in you know what rules changes should be made or what systems should be made for for organized play i think in, in a more macro level they need to make a priority to, to treat those tournaments as as real competitions uh, I, I remember reading, you know, back in the days, how players like Chris Picula and, and others they they fought a, a battle for the soul of the pro tour, where they they wanted to to push against uh, cheating, and but judges and tournament organizers they kind of didn't care enough. They they were too lenient. They they thought it would be disruptive to the tournaments to have to actually train judges and, and go after known players that were cheaters. So they they pushed for it. It, it was a battle for the soul of the pro tour, and and I think. We are in a similar stage in history where we need to to fight a battle for for the soul of competitive magic, in that it's again a competition where fairness is is treated as a priority. Do you mean fairness of the actual 
gameplay, or you mean fairness of the competitor selection or the points? Like, I know you say you didn't want to get so deep into it, but I, I just wanted to get a sense for what you mean, or maybe it's all of the above. I don't know. It's a little bit of everything, right? So, so when I first heard uh, they, they wanted to treat Magic as an esport, the, the first question I ask myself is, what makes an esport good? And and I think StarCraft is a is a wonderful esport, and Dota is a great esport, and League of Legends is a good esport. And what they have in common is they they have ways for for the really good players to to leverage the, their skill and and play interesting games and. And you, as an spectator, as you watch them play, you, you, you kind of feel amazed by what they're doing. There, there's the sense of what they're doing the common player cannot do. So if I wanted to make Magic an eSport, the first thing I would do is create a, a custom format like Cube or uh, Legacy with a curated panelist where skill is the most important factor in the games because I, I want the viewers to have that sense of an amazement. Uh, but but instead, what Wizards is doing is they're, they're using formats that are, are are knowingly bad. Like Duo Standard was a, a horrible format because it had too much variance in it, and they didn't care. And their first million dollar event was Duo Standard, despite it it being a a bad skill format. And at, at the same time, in the history of Magic, the biggest prize you could have, like more more than booster packs and, and more than prize money was if you're good, you get to keep playing. You, you qualified for, for bigger and bigger tournaments, or you get to stay in the Pro Tour, right? So just, just being qualified for, for a high-level event is the prize, is the goal in competitive magic. And when they throw away Pro Club levels and they started handpicking the players that want to play at those high-level tournaments, for me, it's, it's the same thing as they're handpicking the winners. Uh, there, there's no longer incentive for for players down in, in, in the chain to, to keep playing uh it's kind of like they, they took away their the opportunity for for low over players to, to qualify for events when they create discretionary invites right uh, so a, a lot of things that that i care about in in it being a competition and and having the best players succeed and and seeing great players play great games none of that was a priority for them what was a priority for them is just uh, having on camera someone that has a lot of Twitch viewers or, or is famous on Instagram or is handsome or is from the right demographics. And it's hard for me to care about it. Uh, maybe it makes sense for them in the, in the business side of things. Maybe that's what gets more eyeballs and get them more money. But for me as a competitor, I don't care about that. Uh, I only care about that my opponent is, is a really good player and they can play a real game. I, I don't care if they're famous or not. That totally makes sense. And... I'm really curious now, does that mean that for a lot of the players that have been professionals that have been playing for a long time, you know, back when it was actually called PTs in the 2000s and 90s, do you guys see the someone top aiding an MC as being a little bit different from top aiding a PT for those types of reasons? Oh, I mean, absolutely. Uh, a pro tour is something that it, it's really hard in the first place to, to even qualify for. Because you either have to win a qualifier with you know over 100 players, or you have to be consistently good at professional events, and then suddenly you have 400 of the absolute best players in the world under the same roof, and and you play it out, and if you win, you win. So, you know that's for me that's pure competition, that that's pure merit based, that that's a great achievement to do well in those events, and and then you take something like an MC, like there are 68 players, I, I think. 
I don't think they are the 68 best best players in the world. Uh, players in the NPL, they did real well a couple seasons ago, and they have a history in the game, but they're not the players that are necessarily doing well in the last six or 12 months. For instance, uh, uh, Torof Severin and Eli Loveman, they both won Pro Tours this year. They're not playing the arena tournaments. Uh, Eli Cassis was, you know, he's probably the best player in the world right now. He would be the, easily the, the equivalent of Platinum the last two couple of seasons. He's not playing the arena tournaments. And a lot of players in the Hall of Fame, they're not playing. And, and who's playing at those events? So it's discretionarily invited players uh, they, because they, they stream for, for a thousand viewers because if they're from the right region, they're from the right demographic. That doesn't really feel like the same kind of achievement. It just feels like uh, when you win an MC, it's like you, you win a TV show or, or, or something like that. It doesn't really feel like competition. It just feels like, feels like a show. Even though I didn't live that Pro Tour dream, but you guys said being on the train was something special for you guys. And being on the train meant you had to go through the sacrifice and grind and beat all these other great players. And now it just seems like there are ways to skip that. And that's the game is, is basically different. Yeah, I think we're used to, to having to prove ourselves to, to participate in these events. To, Wizards just handling out invitations to whoever they want. And, and I mean, to be fair, there, there is the, the Mythic Championship Qualifier Weekend, which I think is the, the hardest tournament on Earth. There are like literally thousands of players for playing for 16 slots. And you have to have like go 10-0 in the first day and then beat a very tough field in day two. So... Those players, I have so much respect for them. And, and when I think about Magic as eSport, I actually think that the one thing they did right was those qualifier weekends. It's just free for events and you play. So I was saying I have a lot of respect for, for players that went through the open qualifiers. Uh, I wish there were more of them. I think they could be you know, four times their size or five times their size. I think they, they should be able to accommodate more, more players at those Arena Mythic Championships and kind of have them like a pro tour, but played on computers. And that's kind of what I expected when I signed up for, for the NPL. That, that's kind of the vision I have for, for esports. The, the only thing different between the arena events and the tabletop events are the computers. But instead, they, they have a whole different philosophy behind them. And I, I just don't care that much about them, I guess. So, Lucas, I'd like to switch gears a little bit and ask you about some of the key friendships or relationships that you have within Magic. Let's start with Carlos first. Carlos is someone that you looked up to initially on the national stage, and then he became someone that you knew. So tell me a bit about how you guys basically became friends. Yeah, you know how the saying go, you should never meet your idols? That's complete bullshit. Like, those people, <laughs> they, they never met Carlos. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I sort of idolized him. He was the guy that, when he won roles, made me come back to, to buy Magic cards again. And when I qualified for, for my first Pro Tour in a long time, uh, I had the opportunity to be in the same testing team as him. And, of course, I said yes. And we, we sort of became friends. We, we have around the same age. We have a lot of things in common. And for, for the past three years, we've been sharing a hotel room in, in other streets. So I got to spend a lot of time with him. He, he's just... He's always the loudest person in the room. He he never stops talking. He he has uh, has that about him. He he's always very loud, very happy. He he's he's joking around the time. He's he's making people around him feel good. He he has a, an enormous heart. He he's a fantastically 
talented player. Uh, I learned just so much by, by talking to him and, and watching him play. We, I think we have a, a good friendship going, and I, I really enjoy his company. And it's sort of like a dream to, to be able to, to hang out <laughs> with one of my artists and, and kind of living it. What's your favorite moment involving Carlos? Moment or memory? Oh, yeah. So uh, we, we had the, the team series last year where, where our team, Harulue Latin, we, we were in the run. We, we needed to finish. We need a good finish at the, the Pro Tour Minnesota, which was the team Pro Tour. We need a good finish there to, to qualify for the finals of team series in Las Vegas. So, uh, you know, Carlos, he's very talented, but he doesn't really work very hard at Magic. Like, <laughs> it's not his... <laughs> It's not his style. Like, he prefers to, to take it easy before a tournament because he feels like he'll play more relaxed that way, and it works for him. So no questions there. But since it was a team tournament and we were trying to qualify for a team series, he worked extremely hard for the Pro Tour. I, I mean, I saw him waking up at 6 a.m., you know, turning the magical line, playing for hours on end, and he, he put in all his effort. He, he, he went all in on the Pro Tour. And... Round one, he, he makes it a blunder and costs his team the match. And as I said before, he's usually the loudest player in the room and he's smiling and joking around the time. After that blunder, he was quiet. Uh, he, 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 he was pensive. He, he thought he had let us down. And he had that on his shoulder for, for the whole weekend. He, he, he was blaming himself for, for costing us that qualification. And, and what actually happened is after that one blunder, he played perfectly. Uh, his team uh, made the top four of the event. The, the, the other team, uh, which was me, Savato and Pozo, we, we finished in sixth place. So we finished the tournament as the number one ranked team, higher level. We, we made it to Team Series Finals. And my favorite memory is just seeing the, the relief in his eyes and, and in his voice. And he sort of broke down and, and started crying. And I started crying too, and we all hug each other. And suddenly he yells, "We're the best team in the world!" Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Just seeing how 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 much he cared and, and how hard he worked, and having it worked out well for once, and be able to share that with our teammates, it, it was a great moment. <laughs> he cared about the team more than he cared about himself, truly, right? Oh no, no questions about it. No questions about it. Uh, the, the most important thing for him is. Uh, doing the right thing for his friends and trying to not let us down. Of course, he will nev never let us down just because he made a mistake, but he, he was blaming himself for it. And what's, what's the biggest thing that you've learned from Carlos over the years? How good he is to, to people that he doesn't know. <laughs> like, uh, or, so, so I guess, you know, when you live in a big city, which, which I've been doing for, for, for a few years now, you sort of become sheltered and you stop saying good morning to, to people on the street and you stop talking to your, your cab drivers and your receptionists and, and people, you know, in the grocery lines and you just become, you know, how can I say, a stone cold hearted person, right? He, he's not like that. He, he talks to everyone all the time. Like I, I've seen so many times, him having the kind of conversation, even of a cab driver, where cab driver says, "Hey, where are you guys are going?" And, and I usually lie and say, "You know, oh, visiting friends." And he goes, "Oh, 
we're going to play a Magic the Gathering tournament. It is a competitive <laughs> card game. It's a mixture of chess and poker. Yeah. It's fantastic. You do this, and you're Planeswalker, and you're Spire. Just telling you the, know, the, the, the cab driver or whoever, right? Yeah. <laughs> whoever all the time. He, he always have good spirits on him. He, he's kind to everyone. He treats everyone well. He, he, he's just a, a really good person, I guess. Yeah. That's great because I also live in a big city and I know how it is where life can become very impersonal. So it's always fun to have somebody in your life that reminds you of the alternative, right? Oh, that that's that describes it so well, James. That yeah, that that's absolutely it. Well, yeah. <laughs> I also like to ask you about your relationship with another well-known magic player. I'm going to say his last name incorrectly, but Marcio Carvalho, is that the right way to pronounce it? Oh, it's close. Yeah, Carvalho. Car Carvalho, <laughs> yes. So Marcio is someone who, he's also in the MPL. He's a well-known professional player. Tell me about your relationship with him and how you guys met. Yeah, so I, I guess Marcio is one of the more controversial figures in Magic those days. And yeah. uh, I got asked questions around and kind of like, hey, why are you friends with Marcio? Don't you know he's a cheater? And and I guess that that's really unfair on him. And I guess this is a good opportunity to to explain why. Uh, the first time I, I met Marcio uh, was we were teenagers. It was during uh, Worlds 2005 in Japan. It was like my first pro tour, and I think it was his first as well. And you know, all the Brazilian players became friends with all the Portuguese players because we spoke the same language. And so there there was kind of this this bond between us. In this this large group of people, but and and, and I, I liked a lot of the Portuguese players. I didn't like Marcio very much. Uh, he, he he was very very cocky, very arrogant. He he had this habit of putting down other players that he he perceived were better than him. I, I guess even even for 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 a teenager, he he was arrogant. I guess is what I'm trying to say. And uh, I guess what. I guess that deep down he, he was a little bit uh, insecure about himself and he put too much weight too much weight and importance in how good he was at magic in his own self-worth. So uh, we didn't really become friends at first. I, I didn't really didn't care much about him. I, I thought he, he was too cocky for me and too, too mean-spirited at, at times. So we, we were around in the same group, but we weren't friends. And... After that, we, we played some more events together, and 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 then I quit Magic. Right, I, I was not playing Magic uh, when he he was uh, disqualified and suspended by the DCI. So I, I don't really know what happened then, but when I heard the news, it it didn't strike me as a surprise, because I, the way I see it, uh, cheaters are, are usually insecure people that put too, that put too much of their some their own self worth. And how good they are at magic, and they cannot handle their variance, and they cannot handle the losses, so they cheat. And and I guess that's how I saw Marcio psychologically. He he fit the profile perfectly in my eyes. So I was not surprised by it, even though I I don't know what actually happened. And I guess a few years after that, five or six years after that, uh, when when I was started playing pro tours again, and I. I was part of the testing team, and, and Marcia was going to be part of that as well. And and I had my reservations. I I, I asked around uh, some players that I trusted. Uh, you know, hey, what what's going on? Why why do we have someone that cheats on our team? What's that all about? 
And they said, no, 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 he's different now, and he changed, and I can vouch for him. And if you're willing to, to give him a vote of trust, uh, I think you should do that because you can, you'll be able to see for yourself that he's different. And that's the mindset I had when, when I started playtesting with him, just try to see it with open mind and uh, give him a little bit of trust and see how it goes. And, and the Marcio I met in there's, that second stretch was really a, a completely different person. Uh, I seen him work very hard uh, in supporting his friends, prepare for tournaments in, in their own personal lives. Uh, I come to understand more of his personal demons and, and his struggles. And if at first I saw him as someone that needed to put down others to feel good about himself, now I was seeing him work very, very hard to make his friends better and better. Uh, it's no ex exaggeration when I say that 70 to 80% of his time during Pro Tour preparation is just teaching other people how to play Magic. Uh, he, he wants those around him to, to succeed and be good with him instead of being the, you know, the most successful player on the team. And I guess he, he just matured as a person and, and he learned from what happened and I now see him, see him as a, a very uh, kind-hearted individual, a, a very generous person. Uh, of course, every time he plays Magic, there are two different judges watching, and he, he goes out of his way to demonstrate he's playing clean. I, I have uh, you know, full confidence that he plays good, clean Magic, that he's a good person, and that he was probably the, the best player in the world those last three years based on, on his results and, and how good he was playing. How does he feel about where he's at right now i mean i imagine it must not be easy to have people scrutinizing you even if you are effectively on good behavior now so how does he feel about where he's at today in 2019 yeah uh i think he he draws a lot of support from from the portuguese community and, and his closest friends uh i I can say with confidence that if I were on his shoes, I, I would not be able to take the, the kind of abuse he, he suffers. Like when I, when I made top eight of the pro tour, uh, one of the most fun things about that that experience were you know my my work buddies and, and my family watching the games on Twitch, and they they came to comment comment that with me later, and they talked about what the commentators say and and the chat and all of that. Well, when Marcio plays in the top eight, you, you look at the chat, it's you know, mono people hating on him and, and calling him names and calling him a cheater and all that. Like, imagine if my, you know, if it was my mom reading that about me, I, I just, I would not be able to take it. I, I would just, you know, get out of the game entirely because that that's just too much. Like, every time he does well, there's a Twitter thread calling him names. Uh, I saw the scorn that, you know, not all players, but some players treat him. Uh, there, there was also this mentality in, in the pro community from, 10, 15 years ago, some of the old school American players that, you know, they, they call themselves, you know, tough on cheaters, but in reality, they, they were just bullies. Uh, they, they were hard on everyone that was, you know, outside of their, their clique. Uh, I, I saw them doing terrible things to, to PV, to, to Willie Addo, you know, unjustifiably. And I guess Marcio, you know, he has a background on that, but he, he did change and he's been playing good magic for 10 years, but for that group of players, you know, it doesn't matter. They, they continue calling him names and looking funny at him and making fun behind his back and, and all that. I, I don't know. It, it takes it takes a lot of strength to, to be able to ignore that. I, I know I wouldn't be able to, but 
he, he can do it, and I have a lot of respect for about him for that. I think it's a really good and refreshing, mature attitude to have this sort of value that people can have second chances. I think that let's even go outside magic for a second, right? Because you, you you're in law, and or just by being a citizen of the world there's always a chance that we have done things that we're not proud of when we were younger. And sometimes this thing, even if we admit it's a mistake, it just stays with us for our entire lifetime. And that can just be a very difficult thing to, to bear. So I think it's good that you're willing to, you know, give people the benefit of the doubt, especially if the vouching was by a friend of yours, someone who you trusted, you know, I know that if, if someone said that to me and I really trusted him, then I would be willing to give the person the benefit of the doubt. And especially if that person actually then came through with actually demonstrating that he or she is is different now, that's got to mean something, right? I, I don't even know if there's a question here, but I, I, I can definitely see your your line of reasoning. And I, I'm really glad that you, you talked about it. Yeah. Uh, it is important that, you know, as a society that, you're willing to to forgive others' mistakes. I guess in my line of work, I've seen people do all sorts of horrible things, and uh, I've seen some of them try to become better persons after that. And it's it's never easy. I guess it's not really fair to, to compare, you know, someone that breaks the law to I don't know, looking looking your side during a draft and magic tournament. But there there are some parallels. It's just uh, when it comes to magic, it, it, it's such a huge part. Of, of Marshall's life and you know it's it's his job it's how he spends most of his time and just just try to imagine just always being remembered by what you did when you were at your worst for your whole life all the time like it's very hard to to survive that and if someone is willing to to improve and they they've shown that they consistently shown that uh, we have to be able to to forgive and forget it, it's, it's just not fair like it doesn't make a, the world a better place to, to, I guess, always punish someone for, for a mistake they did, you know, 10 years ago. Um, I guess what I'm trying to say is <laughs> it's easy for, for someone to, to think they're they're taking the, the higher moral ground when they say, hey, I, I'm against cheaters, so I, I will always punish them and I will always be harsh on them. But but I guess it's not the right thing to do. Uh I, th I think if you always expect someone to cheat and always call him a cheater, you're just making it more likely for, for people to, to act on it, right? Because that's what everyone expects you to do. And you're just making the, the world a better place. Uh, we, we all make mistakes. We, we all need to learn how to move on. So, Lucas, I also wanted to ask you about your content. My bias is going to show here. I am a huge proponent and lover of the legacy format. And yes. the first time I actually got a hold of your content it wasn't because you won a pt or something like that i hate to say that but it's because you did some amazing posts on reddit about legacy rated content i believe you posted also something about testing for an event and you know with grixes and all these kind of things that i felt were amazing and you just put a lot of you're super open with you know sharing everything and I just wanted to ask you, because not every pro does that. Like, what makes you want to share these things so widely with the community and just kind of put yourself out there? Oh, uh, it's it, because it, it, 
it's what I love the most about about magic, I guess. It's it's the process, right? It, it's how you learn. What do you know, and how do you know it? And uh, and I and I put a lot of uh, effort in, in my preparation, in you know, a lot of thought in what is the most efficient way to, to learn a matchup. What is the most uh, efficient way to to talk with my teammates? How how, how can I learn how to mulligan? How how do I learn the, the best pick patterns? It, it, it's just it's a constant uh, effort to upgrade my testing process, and and I feel very very passionate about it. And, and for me, sharing that information is just I mean it's just a lot of fun. <laughs> uh, uh, I like talking about it because then people reply by telling me how they 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 play test. Uh, for instance, uh, uh, J. Dean Complarence when she she wrote for Star City Games said, hey, I, I read your post on, on legacy preparation, so here's how I did for this pro tour. And, and for me, that made all the effort worth it, right? So I, I can learn how, how others are, are preparing to. It's just legacy in particular was a lot of fun. Uh, I came in in the format cold. I, I didn't know that much about it. I, the first thing I did is create a magic online account called Legacy Master. Just trying to to, to will myself. <laughs> I love it. I love it. <laughs> Just trying to will myself in the, the belief that I would be able to learn that format. And I was playing this this Grixis control or, or for color control deck right away because they told me it was the most complicated and had more decisions and was the hardest sideboard with. I, I just right. You're gonna take the challenge to on. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, just 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 take it head first, you know. Uh, and, and oh my God, I loved that deck so much. I, I loved playtesting Legacy. It, it was the best time I had playing play Magic in the Pro Tour that this, this last few years. That the community, it's amazing. Uh, the day you decide, hey, I, I need to learn, you know, what is my Death and Texas matchup like? And you know, there's you know, Trevin Academy and five different forum posts with people talking exclusively on Death and Texas versus Grixis Control. And you can reach out to to all those specialists, and they're they're willing to share information, and you can go into detail about basically anything you want. Uh, it, it's a very uh, passionate community. Uh, it's a very tight knit community too. Uh, I had a lot of fun just chatting with people on Magic Online, which I usually don't do, but I guess in Legacy you can do that and asking, hey, why why did you make that play? And then you become friends, right? Uh, it, oh man, it's it's the best of times. <laughs> I, I I do love. Yeah, and what I found really refreshing about it too is because I, I I had some of the folks you mentioned, I, I know them personally as well, and it seemed like you were hungry to absorb this information. So you actually reached out to people and be like, and you were very humble, like I don't I don't know this format or this matchup very well or this deck. Can you help me or can can you explain this to me? And I think that's actually really refreshing because a lot of non-pro players just sort of see pros as being. I don't know what's the right term, like maybe like a little bit arrogant. They don't want to reach out to people, but I, I feel like you have, and that's that's really cool. Yeah, I, I mean, it's such a bad mentality to 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 close yourself to the opinion of others. Uh, I, I I paid for for coach sessions with uh, Brian Cook on, on on Storm, for instance, and it was great. It was like I, I wish you know every hour I had spent for for my previous pro tour were as productive as, as the co those coaching sessions. And, you know, you know, at first he, he was a little bit humble about it. And say, he, he, go, he went to me and said, hey, yeah, of course, you're a professional player. So you probably see a better line than I am seeing. Like, no, absolutely not. Like, <laughs> I, I'm a professional player because I, I play booster draft and standard. Playing Legacy Storm, it's your thing. You absolutely, you know the best lines. It's very important for me to, to understand your thought process. So I can try to emulate that myself. 
and I, I consumed a lot of content during the, the period, which I, I do enjoy doing a lot. Oh, and well, the, yeah, it, it was so good. <laughs> Excellent. And what's the most interesting piece of feedback you've received on Reddit for some of the things that you have written? I mean, it doesn't have to be legacy, but just magic in general. Like, is there something that surprised you in terms of feedback? Well, there's always something. Uh, I, I don't remember anything huge right now, but uh, sometimes the, the, it's not really about someone uh, giving you an answer, but someone making a question that you didn't think before. Someone makes something, hey, uh, how would you sideboard in that matchup if you saw that and that card? Because I said, no, no, no one would ever bring those cards against me. I said, no, no, they would, and I saw them doing it. So, you know, if that happened, how how would you react? And and when I tried to answer that, I realized, well, yeah, it does make a lot of sense for for my opponent to bring in those cards, and I would not have seen that myself. And uh, when when people ask me uh, about cards, I maybe I haven't considered before. They ask about line of plays that I I haven't necessarily seen. Uh, it, I mean, I, I enjoy talking about magic, and you know, not not every question is has an obvious answer for me. So. Just being asked the, the right questions, it's, it's very stimulating and uh, it's very productive for me, I guess. That's great. And do you see yourself playing more legacy or vintage or some of the, the formats that are not as mainstream in the, in the future? Oh, yeah, for sure. Uh, I, I bought a, a vintage collection on, on Magic Online, <laughs> which is <laughs> where I can afford to do that. Awesome. But but I haven't played it yet because I'm I'm always preparing for you know stupid standard or pusher draft or something. I I think I guess when when I retire from professional play I'll just want to play legacy vintage and, and the pusher draft formats that I like not not every single one of them. That's great. And Lucas, I wanted to give you a couple of rapid fire questions to close off the interview. Are you okay with that? Yeah yeah let's go. Okay, so what are your goals? in the next three to five years? They can be magic or professional, career-related, anything you want to tell me. I'll make a lot of money. Um, if you can do that playing magic, that's great, but probably not. So just focus a little bit more on my work, get some more clients, work more big cases, and get paid. Get a good financial situation going, right? <laughs> yeah, do that while you still can, because you know you never know the future. So. Gotta gotta make here, uh, you know, some some reserves while <laughs> I'm still able to. What would you tell the younger Lucas if you could go back in time five years? If you had a time machine, what would you tell him in 2014? Just to take care of your friends more, because relationships when you're adult they they don't come as easy. You have to work for them. And if you don't put in the effort in relationships or in your love life or, or with your friends, the, the things, they just kind of fade away. You have to work for it. Do you feel like that you are a little bit better at that now versus five years ago? Yeah, I think I had to learn the, the hard way, but I'm getting better. What would you tell the future Lucas five years into the future, if you have a thought or a belief that you are holding on to now, what would you tell the future Lucas so that he would not forget that same thought? Always speak your mind. You have to be diplomatic about it. 
you have to be careful about choosing your words, but you need to be true to yourself, to your own beliefs. Don't don't be, pretend to be something else just to please people. Don't say things that you don't believe in. That's awesome. Lucas, I feel like today you have spoken your mind. I really appreciated your your honesty and being so straightforward and everything. It was a great time talking to you and I truly wish you the best in all of your future endeavors. James, thank you so much for having me. Uh, I really enjoyed the experience and keep up with the, the great work you're, you're doing in the community. I, I got to learn so much more about great people by, by listening to your podcast. I haven't read the book yet, but I plan on doing it. Uh, I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Humans and Magic. To get more information about the show and to join the mailing list, please visit humansandmagic.com. And don't forget, the Humans and Magic book is now available on Amazon for both paperback and Kindle. We'll see you next time.